Hello, Christ community. So glad all of you are, are here. Um, so over the course of the last six months, um, two friends of mine have died. Uh, one, a, a pastor friend uh, named Brian and a, a golfing buddy named um, Joe. I was involved in both of their memorial services, and they're both amazing men. Um, and one of the things that happened to me at their services as I heard people tell stories about these men was that I was inspired to live differently. I mean, hearing certain parts of their life story made me want to change some things in my own life. I mean, people's stories have a way of doing that, right? People's stories have a way of doing that. And today, we're looking at a passage in the, in the Bible, in the book of Ephesians, where Paul stops his previous train of thought, and he tells a little bit of his own story. Now, honestly, there's a lot of things in his story we can't really relate to, but there is also something in his story that does connect with our lives. There is something that inspires me to want to live differently. See, right at the beginning of chapter 3, Paul reveals something pretty significant about his life situation. Okay, so chapter 3 of Ephesians, verse 1. From this, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. Now let's stop right there. Paul is writing this letter from prison. This is the first time that he has mentioned anything in this letter about him being in prison. If I was writing from prison, I'd be letting everyone know how bad the food was and how I was being treated and all that stuff, wondering how quickly they were going to get me out. Paul is not doing any of that. It takes him three chapters to even mention that he's in prison. And when he does mention it, his perspective blows me away. Here he is in this very challenging situation in a place where he doesn't want to be. And yet his focus is not on his circumstances. His focus is on something else entirely. See, the mention of the word prisoner in verse 1 causes Paul to stop his train of thought. He'll pick it up again. We'll, we'll, we'll see a little later. But it's, he stops his train of thought and he begins to explain to his readers why he was in prison. <clears throat> Surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. His intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. See, Paul is saying to his Gentile friends, don't be discouraged about my being in prison for you. Because this is your glory. See, in other words, my whole life is focused on sharing this good news with Gentiles like you. And we know from Acts chapter 21 that this is basically the reason that Paul gets, in, gets thrown in prison in the first place. So here he is in prison. And all he can talk about is what Christ has done. 
This is what his heart and his life were focused on. Paul lived every moment of his life with God at the center of everything. And that enabled him to face prison and hardship and difficulty, whatever. See, that inspires me. That kind of a life inspires me. I mean, when I'm going through hard times, when things are not working out the way I'd hoped they would, and everything within me wants to gripe and complain and get discouraged, Paul shows us another way of living. See, Paul lived his life in this dynamic, life-changing connection with God that actually superseded his circumstances. <clears throat> now, here's what is so cool about this passage. After sharing his story, Paul then launches into a prayer for the people who are reading this letter. And here's what he prays for. He prays for us to have the same kind of courage and strength and focus with which he lived. See, in this prayer, we see how we can live this God-connected life no matter what our circumstances now, we're going to focus today on the first few verses of this prayer, which really provide the foundation for a God-centered life. This is the foundation for a God-centered life. All right, Ephesians 3, 14 to 17. <clears throat> for this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. This is God's word. Now, one of the things that makes this prayer so powerful and instructive is the Trinitarian nature of it. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. See, for Paul, the Trinity was not simply some theological concept to debate over a cup of coffee. No, the, 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 the doctrine of the Trinity informed and influenced how Paul experienced God, and it can for us as well. All right, so let's unpack each of these. First, the Father, verse 14. For this reason, I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and earth derives its name. So throughout this letter, Ephesians 1 and 2, we've been studying this. Throughout this letter, Paul has referred to the Father a number of times as being the member of the Godhead who is orchestrating God's amazing plan. So Paul says in chapter 1 that it is the Father that, that is the one who chose us and who adopted us. Later in that chapter, he says, it's the Father who gives us this spirit of wisdom and revelation. So Paul is kneeling in prayer, humbling himself before God the Father, before Father God. And he says this, he says that this Father is the one from whom every family in heaven and earth derives its name. What does that mean? What does that mean? Many family experts assert that, that while moms and dads play a, an important and unique role in the development of our children, one of the things that fathers are uniquely able to do is impart identity. So dads, your role in establishing a healthy identity in your sons and daughters cannot be overstated. 
It is huge. Your role is huge. So where did this fatherhood influence on identity come from? From God the Father. See, Paul's words here acknowledge that our identity comes from God. We've been talking about this through this whole series. Uh, through this whole series, we've been saying, who you believe you are determines what you do. Who you believe you are determines what you do. Paul's identity was rooted in who God is and who he was in God. That is, that is what enabled him to have the attitude that he had in prison. See, his identity wasn't determined by his circumstances. He wasn't moping around because of the injustices he experienced in a Roman prison. He wasn't, he wasn't focused on all these things that he could be accomplishing if he wasn't in, you know, in this situation. No, his identity was rooted in him being a beloved child of God the Father. And Paul knew exactly what his father is like. He knew exactly what God the Father is like. Look at the next verse. Paul says about his father, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power. See, Paul knew that his heavenly dad is a God of abundance. He is a God of glorious riches. And Paul, as, as Paul prays, he is rooting his soul in the amazing and abundant splendor and goodness of the God to which he is praying. See, that there is something so powerful, there is something so inspiring here for you and me. What are we focused on when we go through difficulties? When we go through hardships? What are we focused on? See, a lot of times we're focusing, we're looking at our circumstances. And what happens when we look at our circumstances? Well, for one thing, fear creeps in, right? What am I going to do? What if this doesn't work out? What if I fail? What if, I mean, just fill in the blank. I mean, so often in times of difficulty, we live our lives from a seat of fear. And that fear is the result of where our hearts and our minds are focused. Paul could have been focused on his chains. What will I do? What if I can't get out of here? How do I do what God's called me to do when I'm in this prison? He could have been focused on that. And fear could have so easily crept into Paul's heart, but it didn't. It didn't. Why? Because Paul was focused on who God is and who Paul himself is in him. I mean, imagine how our lives, how our attitudes, how our emotions would be impacted if in the midst of difficulty, we reminded our soul that we are children of an amazingly glorious and generous and good father. Our identity is not found in our circumstances, no matter how bad those circumstances are, no matter how challenging they are. Our identity comes from God the Father, who is for us. He is for us. Paul knew that. He lived that. And it inspires me to want to live that way. It inspires me to want to live that way as well. Okay, so after acknowledging the Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth derives its name, our identity is given, right? Paul then moves to the Holy Spirit, verse 16. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he, the Father, may strengthen you with power through his Spirit 
in your inner being. The Holy Spirit is the very presence of God. The Holy Spirit is God's loving and active power on this planet. I mean, the Holy Spirit was actively involved in creation. In, in Genesis chapter one, the Holy Spirit is, is one with God and is diligently at work accomplishing God's purposes on this planet. But he is also at work in us. He is also at work in us. Paul is praying that we would be strengthened with power by this very same spirit who fills us and speaks to us and empowers us. See, the reason Paul prays this is because he ex is experiencing this. That's why he's praying it. It's because he lives this. It's because he's experiencing this. Paul knows the power of the Holy Spirit in his own life. I mean, here he is in prison, and yet he exudes this peace, this positivity, this hope. I mean, from where does that come? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. Okay, so, so where exactly does the Spirit do this work? Look at verse 16 again. Through his Spirit in your inner being. In your inner being. See, this is how Paul experiences the Holy Spirit. Not as some impersonal, mysterious force out there. No, no, no. Paul experienced the Holy Spirit in here. In his inner being. As a reality in his inner being. Which is why he prays for us to experience this as well. See, what's, what's going on in your inner being at any given moment of time? At any given moment in time, what's going on in your inner being? Especially if in that moment in time you're feeling like life is out of control or stress is your constant companion or whatever. What is going on in your inner being? If, if, if our inner world is left on its own, I know from personal experience exactly where that leads, and it is not good. Despair, discouragement, fear, that's what's going on if that's just kind of left on its own. See, Paul is praying that we would have a completely different experience than that. That we would experience God's spirit working in our inner being. In that place where fear and discouragement and stress so easily creep in. See, that the spirit of God is able to work in your inner being. That's because that's, that's where transformation happens. It's in here. It's, it's, it's not our external circumstances. It's not about our external circumstances changing as, as much as we really like that, uh, right? Um, but it's about our, it, 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 it's in our inner being where change happens. It's in our inner being where we're able to respond to life's difficulties differently from a place of peace and calm rather than a place of fear and, and confusion. And the Holy Spirit is the one who is able to do this in you and me. He is able to do this in us. Okay, so, so how then does that happen? What does that look like? Well, that's what Paul addresses next in this prayer. What is the Spirit doing in our inner being that brings about this strength, this peace, this confidence? Well, look at the rest of verse 17, where Paul finally gets to the heart of this kind of life, a life that's rooted in our identity from the Father and the working of the Spirit in our inner being. But to what end? What is the Father and the Spirit? What, what, to what end? Well, he tells us, verse 17, 
fact, read this out loud with me. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts. That's what Paul is after. That's the key. That's what Paul experienced. And that is what he is longing for and praying to happen in our lives as well. So let's unpack what this means. Because it initially feels like a really odd thing to pray. I thought Jesus already lives in us. I thought he already dwells in us. Right? I mean, when we place our trust in Jesus... We all know Christ comes to live in our hearts, right, through the presence of the Spirit. So why is Paul praying that Christ may dwell in our hearts if he already dwells there? It's because there is a huge difference between having Jesus live in us and having Jesus live with us. Huge difference between having Jesus live in us and having Jesus live with us. What Paul is praying for, for us, is to experience what I would call Jesus awareness. Jesus awareness. Paul is describing a very real experience where in our inner being, we live in a constant awareness of and connection to Christ's very own presence within us. That's what he's praying here. That's what he's describing. That's what he's living. He's praying for us. Now, this, this idea of being present, you know, being present in the moment, um, this, this idea, it's a topic that is all over the place today in our society. You know, it's often referred to as mindfulness. Maybe you've heard this phrase, mindfulness. Several months ago, Time Magazine, front page, cover. The story was about the value of mindfulness. Athletes like Kobe Bryant and businesses like Apple, as well as many psychologists and counselors and doctors and neuroscientists are all talking about the value of mindfulness. Emotionally, mentally, physically, socially, right? And while some people link mindfulness to Eastern religions like Buddhism or whatever, the Bible embraces this as an important aspect of the spiritual life when Jesus is at the center of it. When Jesus is at the center of it, it is a critically important aspect of a healthy spiritual life. See, again, that's the key, Jesus being at the center of this. What, what Paul is praying for here is that we would experience a Jesus-centered mindfulness. That's what he's praying for, that we would experience a Jesus-centered mindfulness, that we would live in a constant awareness of and connection to Christ's presence with us every moment. I mean, when you, when you really boil it all down, this, this really is the essence of Christianity, and yet we so often miss it. I mean, this, this really is the essence of Christianity and of transformation, and yet we so often miss it. See, for some of us, our experience of Jesus is sort of like renting a basement room to someone. So technically, the person lives in your home, right? They occupy a particular space in your home. So they are legally on the premises, but they are not living with you. 
I mean, you're not doing meals with them. You're not hanging out with them. In fact, you kind of hope that you're, as aware, you're aware of them as little as possible, right? You don't want to hear their music blaring. You don't want to hear their dog barking. Life is best when you are not aware that they're even there. But the life Paul is praying that we would experience is not a life with Jesus as a basement tenant. Now he's praying that we will experience a Jesus who sleeps in our living room, who eats meals with us, who watches Netflix with us, who does life with us. A Jesus who is a part of everything we do and every experience we have. See, that's how Paul lived. And it enabled him to thrive in the midst of all sorts of difficult circumstances, including prison. This was the key. This is what enabled him to thrive, even in really difficult circumstances. And that inspires me. That inspires me. I want to experience that in a greater way in my life. I'm guessing many of you do as well. I don't, I don't want to be content with Jesus living in me when what he really wants is to live with me in this intimate communion every moment of every day. So what is it that makes the difference between these two very different experiences of Jesus? A basement tenant or a close friendship? What makes the difference? Well, Paul tells us. Look, look at the last two words in this verse, this, this phrase. So that Christ may dwell in your heart through faith. Through faith. See, what makes the difference between a distant cohabitant relationship with Jesus and an intimate connected one like Paul experienced boils down to one thing, our faith. Our faith, which is a really, which is a really good thing. Uh, it's really good news because it means that all of us can grow in this. There is not some spiritually elite class of people like Paul and maybe Mother Teresa and a few other people, you know, and they experience this, but the rest of us, you know, we're just kind of whatever. No, 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 that, that's not at all. It, this tells us it is accessible to all of us through faith. It's accessible to all of us. All of us can cultivate a deepening awareness of and experience of Jesus' presence with us. That's why Paul prays for this to happen in us. It's available to us. That's why he's praying for it. It's available to each one of us here. But it won't look the same for each one of us. That's really important. Because a lot of times we compare our spiritual light with someone else. Oh, I don't hear from God like they do. Or I don't experience the God and I must be whatever. I mean, we draw all these conclusions, but it doesn't work that way. We are all wired differently. We're all wired differently. And we experience Jesus in different ways. This is not a formula. It's not a formula. Oh, go do this. Go spend an hour, blah, blah. It just, it doesn't work that way. It's a relationship. It's a relationship. So let's talk about the critical role that faith plays in our growing in this experience of Jesus' awareness. So let's, let's start with this question. What is faith? What is faith? Um, it, it is so important for us to understand that biblical faith is not the same thing as belief. It's not. It's not the same thing as belief. To believe something means I'm convinced intellectually that something is true. 
right? Someone can believe intellectually that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead. They can believe that, but that belief in and of itself, that belief is not transformative. I mean, demons believe that. Demons believe Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead. So biblical faith is not simply intellectual assent. Biblical faith is relational trust. It's relational trust. See, the the atmosphere, the DNA, the essence of biblical faith is rooted in relationship. Trusting the person of Jesus. Trusting the person of Jesus. So what is the connection between faith and Jesus' awareness? If our goal is for Christ to dwell in our hearts, i.e. for us to become more Jesus aware every moment of every day, how do we engage our faith in that process? Again, there's no formula here. I'm not going to give you, here, do this. I'm not going to give you a to-do list here. There's no formula. There's no right way to do this. But there is a critically important question that helps open this door in our lives. And each one of us needs to answer this question or to ask this question and process it. Here's the question. What are some practices that can help remind me or you of Jesus' presence with you throughout your day? That's the key question. It's not asking this for the person sitting next to you. It's asking this for you. What are some things that actually awaken each of us to the reality of Jesus' presence in our lives? It's a great question. And again, it's unique to you. What awakens this? So you may be thinking, I don't know what you're talking about. So let me give a couple examples here, okay? One from a woman, one from a man, um, and, and because people are wired differently, okay? So here, here's, um, here's, here's one example. I've been reading this book um, called Liturgy of the Ordinary. Uh, fascinating book uh, by a woman named Tish Harrison Warren. Liturgy of the Ordinary. And in it, she talks about the various ways in a typical day that she is intentionally reminding herself of her sacred union with the Trinity, with the Godhead, through waking up, through eating breakfast, or responding to email. She has a chapter for each one of these things, or arguing with her husband. There's a chapter about that. Um, So it's a really, really powerful read. So in one of the chapters, I just want to give you a picture of this. This is just one of the things she mentions. She talks about how her usual morning routine, when she got out of bed, was to grab her phone. None of us can relate to this. She uh, grabs her phone and she spends a few minutes looking at texts and emails and Facebook and Twitter and all that. And she admitted that technology had begun to fill every moment in the day. And so I want want to read what she wrote here. She said, I decided that for Lent that year, that's the 40 days leading up to Easter, for Lent that year, I'd exchange routines. I'd stop waking up with my phone, and instead I'd make the bed first thing. And then spend the first few minutes after I made the bed sitting on my freshly made bed in silence. So I banished my smartphone from the bedroom. She says this, my new Linton routine didn't make me wildly successful or cheerfully buoyant as some had promised. But I began to notice very subtly that my day was imprinted differently. The first activity of my day, the first move I made was not that of a consumer, 
but that of a co-laborer with God. Instead of going to a device for my morning fix of instant information, I touched the softness of our well-worn covers, tugged against the wrinkled cotton, and brought some small order out of small chaos. So after making her bed, she then sat on her newly made bed. Sometimes she would read scripture or pray the Lord's Prayer. Sometimes she would just lay out before God her worries and her hopes and questions, spreading them out in his presence like stretched out sheets. But mostly, she says, I'd invite God into the day and just sit, silent, sort of listening, sort of just sitting, but I sat expectantly. God made this day. He wrote it and named it and has a purpose in it. See, that's an example of someone choosing to exercise faith in the ordinariness of life in order to be reminded of Jesus' presence with her. It was a simple, simple, and yet powerful act of holy mindfulness, Jesus-centered mindfulness. Now, granted, it just involves some intentionality. This doesn't happen automatically. None of this does. It involves some simple intentionality and can be very powerful. So that's one example. Let me share another example that's been a help to me in this area. So I recently read a book by Greg Boyd um, entitled Present Perfect. Present Perfect. And uh, he's a pastor in Minneapolis. He unpacks this idea of practicing the presence of God, of, of practicing the presence of Jesus. And so he does, it's a really good read, um, Present Perfect. But, but the cool thing about what I appreciate about Greg Boyd is he, he's not a touchy-feely guy. And if you're thinking, oh, I can never do this. This is all that touchy-feely stuff. Uh, no, no he, he's not a touchy-feely guy at all. He's, kind of, he's really an intellectual. Um, but he has, he has experienced what Paul is describing. And so let me just share kind of some of what he's done. And one of the, one of the ways that he practices this is by using the God-given gift of imagination. The God-given gift of imagination. All of us have the power to imagine things in our minds. We use this capacity all the time. For instance, when I say the name Carrie Underwood, what comes to your mind? Not female country vocals. You don't think those words. No, what comes to your mind is a picture. What comes to your mind is an image. Your imagination, that's what's being activated. Your initial thought was not those words. Your initial thought was her, a picture of her. See, a picture is worth a thousand words, right? I mean, no wonder God has given to us our imagination. It can become this incredibly powerful tool to use in our spiritual lives. And here's been the problems. A lot of Christians, they immediately hear imagination and they think, oh, new age, can't have any of that. You know, it's like, why do all the Eastern religions get our imagination? Why can't we have that too? Because God gave it to us. Why should we abandon this just because some Eastern religion uses it as well? I mean, God gave us our imagination. And so instead of downplaying it or being afraid of it, how about we do something else with it? And here's what Boyd talks about. What if we imagined in our minds something that the Bible says is true? For instance, Jesus is with you. Bible says that's true. 
right? No one will argue with that. Biblical truth. Totally true. You can memorize all sorts of verses that say that, which is great. Memorizing verses, great. But what if you imagined yourself sitting on a bench in a very peaceful place and Jesus is sitting right next to you? And what if you just stayed in that place in your imagination for a few moments or even a few minutes? See, sometimes when I'm going into a difficult meeting or when I'm nervous or stressed about something, I will take a few moments, sometimes a couple minutes, and I will envision Jesus surrounding me. I will envision him with me. It is powerful how often in just a couple minutes I am able to better sense his nearness in that moment. See, this is a way to exercise faith. We are putting a mental picture to something the Bible says is true. And when we do that, it can awaken our awareness of his presence with us. Again, this is not a formula. This is not a formula. That's why I gave you two examples. It is not a formula. Using our imagination, it may work for some, works for me. It's really helpful. It may not work for some of us. That's totally, that's totally fine. Again, the key question, the key question is this. What are some ways in the midst of your ordinary day that you can increase your awareness of Jesus' presence with you? That's the question that each one of us has to answer for ourselves. What are some things in our ordinary days, whatever we're involved in, some ways where we can increase our awareness of Jesus' presence with us? And let me just say, don't underestimate the power of a two-minute chunk of time where instead of grabbing your phone to fill that gap because the person's late for your coffee or whatever, instead of always grabbing the phone, don't underestimate the power of choosing to take that minute or two to quiet your heart and, 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 and let your soul get connected afresh to the Trinity, to this Father who bestows on you your identity as a beloved son or daughter of God. And this Holy Spirit who is available and working in you to help you experience the witness of Jesus every moment of every day. Because here, here's the deal. I've talked a lot about this lately, but I feel like I want us all to understand this. There is no sacred, secular divide in life. Oh, I'm really more with Jesus at in a church service than I am doing laundry. No, no. There is no sacred, secular, we're the ones who create that. There is no sacred, secular divide in life. Jesus is just as much with you when you're putting the kids down or studying for finals or sitting in a planning meeting or swimming in a swim meet or picking up kids from school or loading the dishwasher or having an argument with your spouse or having a panic attack in the middle of the night. Jesus is with you. He is with you. In all of those places and more. Not just, oh, when I'm having my quiet talk. No, he's with you in all of those places and more. God, God invites us to increasingly live 
in that reality. And in that reality, no matter what challenges we face, no matter what difficulties and hardships or, or mundane routines we find ourselves in, doesn't matter, no matter what we find ourselves in, God invites us to live more and more in this reality of the witness of Jesus. And, and, when, and, and what we'll discover, how, whatever that looks like in your life, what we will discover is that the hope-filled, courageous life that Paul experienced is available to all of us. It is available to all of us. So may God the Father strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Amen? <laughs> Amen. All right, let's pray. So we're going to practice. We're going to practice this just a little bit. Again, no pressure, and this is discovery. This may not connect with you, which is totally fine, but let's just try it. I want you to think just for a moment of a challenging circumstance that you're in. Maybe it's a situation that is occupying your mind and heart. It just is. You just think about it a lot. And maybe there's some emotions that are attached to that. Maybe it's about a family member, whatever. It's just, just think about that for a moment. Okay, so now you've get, you're in this situation. You're kind of connected to that. And now I want you to, in fact, let me just pray just for a, call, a quieting of our hearts. So Lord, I just want to pray you'd quiet our minds and our hearts right now. That you would bring peace to our minds and our hearts. So I want you to do, just imagine a peaceful place. It could be some place you went growing up. It could be a place that you bicycle to. It could be just a a place that for you feels peaceful. And imagine that in your mind. And imagine that you're there. And you're sitting on a bench right there. And now, invite Jesus into that place with you. Just imagine him coming to you in that place, maybe sitting next to you on this bench. Just imagine him being with you. If you're carrying some burden, anxiety, or worry, or something, why don't you just hand it to him? Just imagine. Again, we're doing scripture here. Cast your burden upon the Lord. All we're doing is what the Bible says. So cast, take whatever it is you're carrying and just hand it to him. What does he do with that? Let's just sit in this place for a moment, just a few moments.
Jesus, thank you for your presence with us. Thank you for our imagination, which is one way you've given us to engage our faith. It's not the only way, but thank you for this. And I pray for each one of us that we would explore maybe different things that connect with us, but throughout our day, certain little things that we do, but they serve as reminders and opportunities to connect and remind ourselves of your presence with us. So I pray for that. I pray for that for all of us to grow in this. So we're going to do another practice in just a few moments that can help us experience Christ's presence with us, and that is the Lord's Supper. You know, it's interesting, the Lord's Supper is also referred to as communion. Communion. This this description of union with Christ. This communion with him. And there are various denominations that will argue about in what way Christ's presence is there in that moment. And we're not going to argue about that, okay? Uh, but but there, there's no question that in some way Christ's presence is, um, and he's with us all the time, but there's something about partaking in communion that heightens our awareness of his presence. And so during the worship time, um, at any point during the worship, you can come to a table and take a piece of bread. There's a cup with juice and you can partake either there at the table. You can go back to your seat. But as you do that, as we all do that, I, I want us to not do it in a rushed manner or in a, oh, I got to get there before they get there, whatever, just all that stuff that creeps into our head. Let's just do it with an awareness of his presence, the presence of Jesus who died on the cross for us to make this even possible. This communion represents the reason we can experience Christ dwelling in our hearts. The reason all of us have access to the Father is through Jesus. So let me pray for us and then we're gonna just begin singing. The communion tables are open, but God, thank you. Thank you for God, the Father, thank you for sending Jesus. And Jesus, we thank you for dying on the cross, giving your life. And this bread that we're about to partake of represents your body that was given for us. And the blood that you shed is represented here by this juice, Lord, that you gave, you shed your blood to establish a new covenant that's not based upon our effort. It's based completely upon your work. And so I want to pray for us. I want to pray for us to experience your witness in these moments as well as we tune into you and as we sing and as we partake of the Lord's Supper of communion, that we would be mindful of your presence with us. And I want to just say too, if there's anyone here, you, you've never prayed to receive Christ 
you're trying to earn your way to God, man, the work's already been done. You're working too hard. The work has already been done. Jesus paid the price for you. I encourage you, before you would partake, just to say, Jesus, forgive my sin and come live in me and change me from the inside out through the power of your love. I place my faith in you. So we love you, Jesus. Thank you for all that you've done. And we, we are with you in this moment. Thank you, God. All right, why don't we stand? You can sit down at some point if you want, but let's begin standing. We love you, God. We love you, Lord.